Welcome back to my commentary on Parashat Shmini. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman, and we've been talking about what is food and what is not food, what's kosher and what's not kosher. And what we've established so far in Part A is some hermeneutic principles of biblical continuity. We sought to answer the question of whether or not the list in Leviticus chapter 11 should be understood as applying to Israel alone, that is to say Jewish people, as defined by the church, or should the list in Leviticus apply to non-Jewish people, that is to say um, Gentiles who might come in contact with Israelites of, those, of that day. And uh, we came to the conclusion that, that God is the God of the Jews and the Gentiles. And if a non-Jew wished to join the God of Israel, viz. join the people of Israel, uh, join himself to the God of Israel by becoming part of the people group of Israel, then he would necessarily find himself submitted to the same laws that governed Israel's native-born sons. Therefore, the same law applied to both the native-born as well as to the non-native-born, the Ezrach as well as the Ger. Okay, let's move forward my commentary to talk about traditions, or as Tevye would say, TRADITION! Is there anything wrong with tradition? Well, in and of itself, I don't think there's anything wrong with tradition. But let's talk about the oral tradition that surrounds Jewish communities today. This next section is entitled, Oral Tradition, with a question mark after the word tradition. Although the Torah is amazingly clear in this passage as to what is food and what is not, in many instances a lack of clear understanding still existed among interpreters of the written text as a whole. To be sure, because of the differences of opinions, an elaborate system of oral tradition was established to, quote, humanize the word of God, end quote. It was believed that there existed necessary gaps, as it were, in the exact instructions given in the word of God, in the written word, I should say. It was also necessary, um, the rabbis supposed, to fill in what God left out. From whence did the rabbis derive this authority? Why, supposedly from the written text itself, they say, I want to take a small amount of time out to briefly discuss the problems with the oral Torah. And what this will do is it will pave the way for our first passage that we examine in Mark chapter 7 with Yeshua and the religious leaders of his day. This discussion uh, will become important when we look at this key New Testament passage. All right? Chapter 17 of Deuteronomy talks about the details surrounding official and legal matters of a particular interest to us today is the subject dealt with in verses 8 through 13. To be sure, the sages of old understood this to be talking about the matter of halacha and the authority of what is known in rabbinical circles as oral Torah. Now, from a cursory reading of, of the Deuteronomy passage, it appears to be a valid teaching about establishing a governing body of legal authority based on the spoken opinion of the judge of the day. Now, what I just described here is where the halakha gains its strength and application. The term halakha is roughly translated as, quote, the way in which to walk, specifically a way in which a Jew is to walk. Um, that, at least that's how the rabbis wield the term halakha. In other words, the rabbis see in this passage an opportunity to establish the tradition of the oral Torah as authoritative for the Judaisms that, um, that they govern. In that scenario, the rabbis don't imagine that halakha is binding on non-Jews. Uh, I'm not saying that I, do, that I agree or completely disagree with that notion. We'll talk about that perhaps later. 
But for now, as they see it, this passage in Deuteronomy instructed its readers, quote, in accordance with the Torah they teach you, you are to carry out the judgment they render, not turning aside to the right or to the left from the verdict they declare to you. End quote. That's verse 11. All right. Um, taking the verse in its most natural and literal sense, it does seem to validate the right for the rabbis to impose their judgments on all succeeding generations, right? And to strengthen the suggested interpretation, a first century rabbi the name of, by the name of Yeshua had this to say to his crowd, quote, The Torah teachers in the Prushim, he said, sit in the seat of Moshe. So whatever they tell you, take care to do it. But don't do what they do, because they talk, but don't act, end quote. Now, what Yeshua is addressing here is the issue of hypocrisy when it comes to correctly interpreting the Torah, yet failing to implement it into our lives. But our Lord does not condone the oral tradition as binding, that is, on par with Torah. That's the important point that we need to walk away with when we read the text there in, um, in Matthew 23. However, any tradition when not in direct conflict with Scripture is harmless, I'm sure. Wouldn't you agree? As can be shown, a careful distinction needs to be made by the Jewish believer and Messiah regarding matters of rabbinical authority, in other words, oral Torah, and Torah issues as a whole. If our Messiah correctly determines correct Torah interpretation, then a misrepresentation of the true nature and intent of the Torah, uh, I'm sorry, let me start there, let me read that again. If our Messiah correctly determines correct Torah interpretation, then a misrepresentation of the true nature and intent of the Torah, whether by the sages or of the Jewish people, or by the non-Jewish scholars of today, needs to be avoided at all costs. To sum up my concluding thoughts on both Torah traditions, both oral and written, it is crucial for us today to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah, both written and or oral, as a way of making someone righteous, only achieves its goal when the person by faith accepts that Yeshua is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. And until the individual reaches this conclusion, his familiarity of the Torah is only so much intellectual nutrition. Only by believing in Yeshua will the person be able to properly understand Hashem and consequently His Word. Now, the righteousness that I just mentioned and the righteousness of the Torah is um, rightly recognized as twofold. What do I mean? Number one, there is what the Torah describes as forensic righteousness, which is appropriated the moment one places his unreserved trusting faithfulness in the Messiah prophesied about in the Scriptures. And two, behavioral righteousness is defined as that which is the resulting lifestyle of the former mentioned Forensic righteousness, in essence, Torah submissiveness is what we're talking about. Really, to use church um, lingo, I'm talking about justification and sanctification, right? The primary differences are the fact that the first one, justification, is an act of faith, whereas the latter, sanctification, is an act of obedience. I want you to read Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10 carefully, and you'll see this progression of circumstances at play there. Solid hermeneutics will clearly demonstrate that the Messiah did not abolish the Torah of Moshe because this would consequently include um, the oral tradition that is based on the Torah of Moshe. In other words, 
if well, let me put it this way: if Yeshua did away with the Torah, then he did away with the oral tradition that's based on the Torah of Moshe. And um, historical corporate Israel um, did not ever keep or ever kept all of the Torah correctly. They they are not keeping it now nor did they ever keep all of the written Torah correctly. Even the traditions handed down since Avraham, our father, Avraham Avinu, uh, Israel has failed to keep these things consistently. I might add, neither has the church. Um, the operative word is correctly, though, in my statement there. Um, the freedom of Messiah uh, does not give the church or Israel license to practice iniquity. The Greek word iniquity here equates to Torlessness, anamas or anamia. Um, the Messiah does not uproot, uproot biblical um, behavioral righteousness any more than he uproots biblical forensic righteousness. If he were, then we'd have a very serious problem with such a Messiah. Um, what I'm talking about may be hard to grasp uh, for people listening to my podcast, All right, that Jesus didn't uproot um, behavioral righteousness as defined by the Torah. But if a person has accepted the faith of God in the historical person and work of his son, past or present, then we must admit that they are keeping the central part of the Torah. To believe in Jesus is the central forensic feature of the righteousness of the Torah. Do you get that? If you don't believe in Jesus, then how can you be counted righteous by the righteous one himself? The rest of such a person's journey towards the works of God, as described in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, could possibly be uh, summarized under the term behavioral righteousness. So, if such an oral tradition, the ones that I'm describing, leads one toward the above-mentioned forensic righteousness, as well as the above-mentioned behavioral righteousness, then such a tradition is good and applicable for today's follower of Hashem. Does that seem to make sense so far? I really hope it does. Because, unfortunately, um, a lot of questions arise between what should we do about what the Torah teaches us written, and what should we do about what the Torah implies, and so on and on and on. The discussions go round and round between Jews and Gentiles, and um, I'm afraid there's no... There's no community <laughs> between the two people groups. There's no, um, there's no fellowship taking place, and that's a shame. All right, let's move now into a do really the meat of my commentary. Ha ha ha! Pun intended. Do you get it? The meat of my commentary. All right. What is food? Part two. With this understanding at hand, we may now embark on an explanation of some key New Testament texts, often thought to be teaching the abrogation of the dietary restrictions of Leviticus 11, or at the very least, the modification of the um, definition of food itself. Um, since the Messiah, Yeshua, has become our ultimate example for understanding how to interpret the Torah, let's look firstly to one of his commonly misunderstood teaching examples for our own clarification. In other words, let's gain our um, example first from the Master. All right. Later, we'll turn to the book of Acts to, ex to uh, exegete Kepha, that is to say Peter's vision, and then finally we will examine Shaul, that is to say Paul's, uh, Paul and Romans chapter 14 along with 1 Timothy chapter 4. Okay. Let's start with Yeshua. This next section is entitled Jesus 
and the Pharisees. Sorry about that. My microphone got caught in my shirt there. Jesus and the Pharisees. In Mark 7, verses 1 through 23, we find our Lord engaged in a confrontation with the religious leaders of his day. Now, as was often the case, this particular disagreement stemmed from his definition of Torah observance and their definition of Torah observance. Uh, our text indicates that this certain group of Pharisees observed a tradition passed down from the elders called Netilat Yadayim. And that simply means washing of hands. This technical term itself described the ritual process of washing the hands before one consumes biblically kosher food. This tradition, however, is not found in the Torah itself, I might point out. It is found in the compendium of legal rulings passed from oral instructions to oral instruction, later written down and codified in what would become known as the Talmud. However, in Yeshua's day, it was still known as oral tradition. It wasn't written down yet. We should not confuse the ritual ritual of hand washing before consuming food with the commandment given to wash hands before serving in the holy place. Okay? Let me turn to Exodus chapter 30, verse 17 through 21. Quote, Adonai said to Moshe, You were to make a basin of bronze with a base of bronze for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aharon and his sons will wash their hands and feet there when they enter the tent of meeting. Notice it said wash their hands. They are to wash with water so that they won't die. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by burning an offering for Adonai, they are to wash their hands and feet so that they won't die. This is to be a perpetual law for them throughout their generations. End quote. So, before we even talk about Netilat Yadayim and the washing of hands, as is detailed in the Mark 7 passage, we need to f distinguish between the commandment given to the priests to wash their hands and feet as they administered the korbanot, sacrifices, versus any ostensible mitzvah of washing one's hands before one consumed biblically acceptable food. Everyone on the same sheet of music now? Great, let's keep going. Indeed, from the beginning of the text here in Mark, the Pharisees don't have a problem with what Yeshua's disciples were eating. Rather, they were having a problem with how they were eating. You see that? This careful distinction needs to be pointed out in order for us, the reader, to establish a proper conclusion to the passage. What is Yeshua's response to their false accusation? Let's read it. Mark chapter 7, verses 6 through 7. Quote, Yeshiyahu was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is useless because they teach man-made rules as if they were doctrines. End quote. What are the man-made rules that Yeshua is referring to here? He must be referring to the man-made prohibition of Netilet Yadayim, ritual hand-washing, before one can consume biblically defined food. What is the scripture telling us here? Again, that Yeshua recognized the difference between Torah observance, keeping kosher, and man-made tradition, ritual washing of hands before eating. Moreover, our Master also chastised them for actually replacing 
the clear instruction of Torah with their own oral tradition. I personally, Ariel, don't have a problem with a tradition that is designed to uphold the Torah. I just said that in part A of my commentary. Remember, if a tradition of man comes along to um, enhance the text, well then such a tradition is acceptable. But if a tradition comes along to undermine or uproot the written word of God, then such a tradition needs to be jettisoned, okay? I personally don't have a problem with a tradition that is designed to uphold the Torah. However, tradition must yield when it provides an ostensible license for judgmental attitudes, such as what is taking place in the passage here. We have the rulers of Yeshua's day judging the Talmudim of Yeshua for ostensibly breaking a commandment that's not even found within the written word of God. I personally practice the bracha of Netilat Yadayim, the blessing of ritual hand washing, when I pray the Shacharit morning prayers, which, um, for those of you who are familiar, I've got my um, Art Scroll Siddur, uh, the Sephardic version here in my hand. Let me turn to page 3, and let me read something here for you. On page 3, we have um, the section uh, introduced upon rising and what it says is a Jew should wake up with the gratitude to God for having restored his faculties with a lion-like resolve to serve his creator before getting off the bed or commencing any other conversation or activity the Jew is to recite with gratitude in English I gratefully thank you O living and eternal king for you have returned my soul within me with compassion abundant is your faithfulness. The Hebrew says, ani lefanecha, melech v'kayam, And then underneath that blessing, that bracha, we have a, a little explanation that says, Wash the hands according to the ritual procedure. Pick up the vessel of water with the right hand, pass it to the left, and pour water over the right. Then, with the right hand, Pour over the left. Follow this procedure until water has been poured out over each hand three times. Then, it says, recite in English, The beginning of wisdom is the fear of Hashem. Good understanding to all their practitioners. His praise endures forever. Blessed is the name of His glorious kingdom for all eternity. And the Hebrew says, Reshit chokhmah, yirat Adonai, sechotov lechol osehim, tehilato omedet, La la ad, Baruch Shem Kavod Malchuto Leolam Vayed. Now that's from page three of the Sephardic Art Scroll Sidur. Um, between the Modeani and the Reshit Chokmah, just as I described in the Sephardic version, um, we have the the um, we have the command to wash hands. However, the commandment is um, is actually spelled out for us on page 17 of the same steward. Let me turn there. And down near the bottom of page 17, we have a paragraph that begins, Although many hold that the blessing regarding the wash of hands should be recited immediately after the ritual washing of the hands upon rising, just like I described, others customarily recite it at this point. Similarly, some recite um, Asher Yatzar who fashioned 
immediately after relieving themselves in the morning while others recited here. And then what we have um, on page 17 is the blessing for the washing of hands, which reads in English, and this time it's found right here in my commentary. But um, uh, Gosh, did I put it in the English? I didn't do it. I'm sorry. Uh, I'll have to go back and add that for you. Uh, it says, uh, Blessed are you, Hashem our God, King of the universe, who sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us regarding the washing of hands. The Hebrew says, Again, as I mentioned, I do not condemn those who do not follow this practice. In Mark chapter 7, we don't find Yeshua abrogating the Torah or superseding previously stated commands with his own doctrine. You ever heard that one before? Jesus is greater than the law. That doesn't make any sense, theologically or, or um, uh, ideally, it, or, or, or scripturally. It just doesn't make any sense. Let's look at a few more verses from this passage here in Mark chapter 7. Let's look at verses 18 and 19. Quote, and he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? This time now he's talking to his disciples, because they, they, they weren't getting it. Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that what, whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated? Thus he declared all foods clean. End quote. That's from the New American Standard Bible, uh, the NESB. Wait a minute. Did I just read that right? Thus he declared all foods clean. Isn't Yeshua declaring what we previously read in Leviticus is null and void? Is that what's happening here? Isn't he saying that all food is clean? Surprisingly, he is saying that all food is clean. Something previously established in the Torah. Now I just have to pause there and let that sink in. For um, those of you listening who are just blinking or, or rubbing your eyes trying to figure out or scratching your ears trying to figure out what I just said there. No, no, no. Let me explain. Um, we commonly make our mistake with this passage when we assume that just because, quote, all is clean, end quote, that, quote, all is also food, end quote. This would be in direct violation of, of the text of Leviticus. Now, Yeshua was discrediting the departure of direct biblical injunction in favor of man-made rules. That's what he said about the um, making traditions of men supersede the commandments of God. He was not discrediting the Torah itself. On the contrary, in his own words of Matthew 5, 17-20, he did not come to abolish the Torah, but to fulfill it. So, look at my statement there, right in the middle of page 9. Quote, All is clean, end quote, yet, quote, all is not food, end quote. Now, what does my cryptic statement mean? Well, it means that all that the Torah defines as food is ritually clean without having to submit one's hands to a man-made ceremonial washing before consuming it. Conversely, everything, all, that we in the 21st century church ostensibly call food is not recognized by the Torah as such, I'm afraid. Okay? That's where the passage is best explained for us today. Look at the statement on the bottom of page 9, bold there. Mark's editorial statement, quote, thus he declared all foods clean, end quote, must be understood within the context of Yeshua's immediate didactic teaching 
as well as within the Torah and the Judaisms of the first century. Neither Yeshua, nor his Talmudim, nor the Pharisees, and certainly the Torah, would ever consider everything that we moderns call food as food. Do you see my point there? The Torah is not changing the definition of food. There's only one definition of food. And as we approach the Mark 7 passage, we need to apply the biblical definition of food before we can understand the passage. What is more, in Yeshua's um, midrash that he makes on that when his disciples who couldn't, still couldn't figure out, he's still referring to biblical food that is ingested. And even in that setting, the stomach is designed to purge the food that is to say, allow it to pass through the stomach and out the back end. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Um, and in that passage, the food in essence becomes cleansed anyway, even if it did contain a small amount of ritual defilement. Remember, I suppose I'm getting ahead of myself, the, the penalty for ingesting ritually defiled food is that one becomes ritually unclean for uh, a day. That is to say, until uh, evening. And even then, the, pers the, uh, um, the prescription from the priest is that he bathes himself, washes his clothes, and just remains unclean. In other words, he's unclean towards his fellow Israelite. Conversely, he's also unclean towards the Holy Sanctum. But we'll talk about that later on. Um, for now, um, I want to challenge us with the passage and the information that we've just read. We have failed to grasp the central elements of the passage. If we walk away believing that, quote, thus he declared all foods clean, end quote, means, quote, there is no longer a distinction between pork and lamb. Both are food and meant to be eaten with thanksgiving, end quote. That's the wrong way to interpret this passage, okay? I hope after having done our studies here that I haven't been too harsh and that those of you who had questions about the passage in Mark and its... Um, synoptic copies in the other Gospels are now better poised to better understand the passage in question. With that, um, we are at 26 minutes into Part B. I'm going to go ahead and end it right here because the next section, Part C, entitled Peter and the Vision, is a bit lengthier to explain. To be sure, it's going to be certainly more technical because I'm going to have to jump into the Greek to explain this passage. I, I can't simply do it from the English rendering, okay? Stay tuned for part three, the Parashat Shmini.